Welcome to Visibility Radio. I'm Kenneth Poir, and this program is entitled Just Why It Matters. We'll be talking to people who are subject experts as well as people who live with a vision impairment and other forms of disabilities. My guests and I will cover a range of topics including arts, sports, communications and a whole lot more. Anything that will make a difference to live a full life. So join us on Just Why It Matters. I'm sitting with David Masters and he is Director of Corporate Affairs for Microsoft right here in Australia and we're sitting down in Bank West's Banking New Building right here in Perth and we're having a conversation at the Accessibility Camp. David, thanks for stopping by and, and welcome to Visibility Radio. It's great to be here, Ken. Thank you for having me. Well, I sat into your keynote speech today and there were a few things that um, I'd love to have a chat with you about. Yep. Perhaps beginning with this whole concept of the persona as opposed to the disability, can you tell us exactly the orientation around that terminology? Yeah, look, the whole inclusive design philosophy in Microsoft really owes itself to the design team and, and, and there was one particular person who sort of drove that, a woman by the name of Kat Holmes. And really she'd been sort of taken with this whole sort of notion of inclusive design and there's there's a whole philosophy around universal design and inclusive design and and I guess what really sort of happened was there were a whole there was a lot of academic material mm. and there wasn't a lot of material that was quite user friendly and and uh, and could be used in a in a practitioner sort of sense and so Kat and her team really sort of took upon themselves to create some material that would be usable and and as you rightly point out that the whole sort of the difference between say universal design and inclusive design is that universal design aims to try and solve for everyone whereas inclusive design is really about solving for one and then extending to many which is the term that we use and so really to sort of drill that home is to say well look don't think about disability as a person think about it as an interaction challenge mm. focus on the problem that the person has like the challenge that they have, that's the important part of it, which is the interaction challenge, and then try and solve for that. And then think about how that applies elsewhere. So if you're solving an interaction challenge for someone who is permanently blind, you're also solving a potential challenge for someone who at that point in time can't use their sight. So if they're driving a car, they can interact with their device using their voice. If they're walking into bright sunlight and, and potentially you're, you're solving a brightness challenge for someone who can't see their device, but you're also solving a challenge for someone who needs high contrast or, or has a you know has low vision. So it's creating that that broader awareness that accessibility isn't isn't about a small percentage of the population. It's actually about creating you know things that are usable by everyone. So really, we're talking about a circumstance that presents itself to one who is either encountering blindness because of a physiological condition or from something that is outside his span of control, for instance, driving in the countryside with no lights. Yeah, and it shifts, it shifts disability to, to, being th to thinking about disability as potentially a permanent state or a situational state or a temporary state. And so once you start to think of that in, the, in that framework, it opens up a whole world of opportunities and it also moves the discussion away from one that, that's focused on, well, how many people are we developing for? 
Why would we spend all that effort to develop for such a small percentage of the population, particularly when you're talking about millions and millions of dollars in investment? Mm-hmm. And shifts it to one actually say that it shifts it to a frame that says this is good design, this is good for everyone. And if you're not doing that, then you're missing opportunities, and you're not actually creating the most usable product or service uh, that you could. And it's not so different from the lessons learned from Formula One. The racing teams used all the new technology and that was transferred into streetcars. Exactly. And and one of the best examples of of, of inclusive design is is what they call a curb cut in the US or a, a sidewalk ramp. Now, for someone who is in a wheelchair, that's that makes it much easier for them to get off the curb and into onto the street. But that is also incredibly usable by a woman with a, or, you know, by a mother or a father with a pram. Absolutely. Or uh, someone riding a bike or a skateboarder, even though, you know, potentially the council may not want them using it for that purpose. But, but as you see, it's, it's, it's a simple design feature. Ramps as well is another good example that are incredibly usable by other people. It was designed with a certain type of person in mind, but is actually incredibly usable by a whole, a whole other uh, percentage of the population. Its utility so, value just absolutely, expanded. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, that just really changes the frame. And so really... The, the persona spectrum and the inclusive design toolkit was really about changing the perception inside our developers' mindset so that they were, they were thinking about how they could design the most usable solution they possibly could and opening their minds to the potential other uses for that. It sort of, as I said in my presentation, it seems counterintuitive by focusing on the problems of, of one particular individual, but it, it's incredible what opportunities come out of that conversation and that engagement so well I want to drill down further on this whole subject of focusing on the person as opposed to the masses now there's a a balance somewhere in that formula I believe the cost of customization if you will versus the priority or the objective of a commercial commercially viable project. How does Microsoft balance those two things? That's where standards become really important. So, I mean, because standards give you a guideline. The other thing is about reusing what you've already got in your kit bag. And, and actually, the fascinating thing that's come from this inclusive design approach has really been about the reusability of certain technology that's being you know, used over here and repurposed. So I talked about our translator engine, for example, and how that was developed originally. It was a research project and it's fed into a whole bunch of other areas. So Skype translator, but then it's also been used as a plug-in in PowerPoint. And it's all the same technology. And so if you look at what we're doing, <laughs> we've got some tapping going on. If you look at what we're doing with our AI, it's a whole set of APIs. And so what we call the cognitive services APIs, Mm. you can take those APIs and then plug them into a whole raft of other applications, which then enables accessibility. And so in some respects, as you said, you know, that that sort of global, it's about repurposing things you've developed for one purpose over here Mm. and thinking about the other opportunities to, to use that technology for other uses. Right. Now, I want to go on to another point that you made in your keynote presentation. You talked about inclusive employment. Where does that sit with Microsoft Australia? And what sort of, what sort of talents are you looking for in developing a more inclusive employment opportunity? Yeah, look, we're, 
we're pretty early on that journey in Australia. We're going to leverage a lot of the work that's been done, particularly in the US. Um, they've been on this journey for a lot longer than we have. And the inclusive design, inclusive, sorry, inclusive hiring program in the US has, has had a number of facets to it. The most recent facet is actually an autism hiring program that we've introduced, which has been incredibly successful. And, and there's a lot of discussion in, in the US about the benefits of neurodiversity to, to the way organisations operate and, and in, in increasing that that diversity of thought in, inside organisations. So we've been doing things like in the US we have a thing called the Central Accommodations Fund, which if you have a disability and you need a workplace adjustment, there's a centralised fund that pays for that and it doesn't touch the manager's P&L as an example. We also have programs that help the managers to understand you know, diversity and, and inclusion and so we've done training around that. We have Accessibility 101 training that's been rolled out to the whole organisation and everyone's encouraged to do that. We also have uh, unconscious bias training. We have a range of guides in terms of running inclusive events and, and running inclusive meetings, for example. So there's a whole bunch of material that's been developed over the last four or five years. We've provided a lot of that publicly as well. So what we're trying to do as well is be a good corporate citizen and as we learn things that we think will be usable to others, we'll, we'll share that. We'll put that up on our accessibility site and there is a dedicated inclusive hiring site as well that you can find if you do a search. And so in Australia, we're fairly early on, on that journey. Mm-hmm. We do have a number of employees with disability and, and we actually are trying to leverage the experience of some of those. We actually have an employee who is ex-Vision Australia, for example, and he's an incredible advocate inside the organisation for us hiring more people with disabilities. Yeah. So we're on, we're on early start of the journey, but we're incredibly passionate about, about increasing the diversity of our employee base because that opens our eyes to opportunities. If you're too homogenous in your employee base, mm. you're not thinking about the diversity of the population. No, no, you're not. Um, now, listening to what you've just been is- describing to me, do you think there's space for collaboration with the NDIS and even with educational institutions? Absolutely. We actually, on, so on the educational side, we actually did a great case study with the New South Wales Department of Education that we published late last year which focused on how they're using some of our tools in the classroom to create more inclusive classrooms. And also, they've been using our inclusive design toolkit as a way of demonstrating to their teachers why inclusion matters and how they can think about better enabling students with disabilities. On the NDIS, yeah, we've, been, we've been pretty engaged with NDIA to explore the use of some of our technology in, in their environment and also in their service delivery. So they've been playing around with some of the artificial intelligence as part of their service delivery. Yeah, I think there's an opportunity to go further than that and also look at how the NDIS can enable... Uh, particularly innovation in in assistive technology because it it creates this amazing opportunity for Australia to be a bit of a test bed because there is that funding mechanism there Mm -hmm. as technologies are being rolled out in the world. I'd say the business case to to deploy that technology in Australia is almost better than anywhere else because of the NDIS. Right. Well, David Masters, we have come to the end of our time and I want to thank you for popping in and sitting down with us. No, you're welcome, Ken. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us, and that's just why it matters. I'm Kenneth Poir, signing out. And this episode was edited by Oliver Rahim.